0: You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. So today is uh, the first Sunday of Advent. And so we begin a new Advent preaching series which is called, uh, Mission Impossible is Mission Accomplished. And we're going to start this series with the event that has traditionally been called the Annunciation. And that's referring to uh, the announcement uh, by the angel Gabriel to Mary that she is going to bear a son who is going to be the Son of God. This event is... Uh, Recorded in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. If you don't have a Bible, the text is printed for you in the worship folder, and you can follow the reading there. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Please give attention to God's Word. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word to us today. His perfect, infallible, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word about the word, the eternal Logos, that is your Son, our Lord, may we hear, Father, and understand what you want us to know today. Forgive the preacher's sins and let us all see Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. That, of course, was spoken by C.S. Lewis. And if he is right, and I believe he is, then the Christmas story is either a lot of sentimental nonsense and we're wasting our time, Or it's one chapter in the most important and ongoing story in human history. Lewis is right. There is no middle ground. Uh, You might be able to be ho, ho, ho about Christmas, but you can't be ho, hum about Christmas. Stakes are too high. Jesus revealed those stakes when He entered Jerusalem as an adult a week before He was uh, to be executed. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem and He was weeping. Why? Because He said the people did not recognize the time of God's coming. So the question really is, to you and me, do, do you see the Christmas story as the time of God's coming, or do you dismiss it uh, as a feel-good myth? And how you answer that question is going to have real consequences. So let's dig into the Annunciation this morning, what I've called the real inauguration, meaning it is infinitely more important than the inauguration that's going to happen in our country in January. Now we could we could mine this event all day. I mean there there is a lot here, but let's just focus on on three big realities and and here here they are. First, Christmas has a context. Okay? Christmas has a context. Second, Christmas shows us that God does his best work on the margins. And then third, Christmas confronts you with a choice. So Christmas has a context. Christmas shows you that God does His best work on the margins. And finally, Christmas confronts you with a choice. So reality number one, Christmas has a context. Sometimes it's hard to see because, you know, at Christmas... uh, Over the centuries, the visual arts have sort of frozen Christmas, haven't they? There are the usual cast of characters and and the animals, but they never move. Right? Some have halos. The folds of their robes hang motionless. They're two-dimensional. There's kind of an unreal timelessness about the whole Christmas event. But but we can't view Christmas like we view a Christmas card. You can't look at Christmas as a snapshot. Because what Christmas really is is just a few frames in a long video. A very long video. And to really begin to understand Christmas and to understand this beginning of Christmas, the Annunciation, you've got to go back to the very beginning of human history. Back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created The heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And as the Holy Spirit hovered over that void, creation sprang into existence, right? Everything we know as our home sprang into existence as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters and God spoke. But it wasn't long before human beings defaced it, wrecked it, right, by disobedience and rebellion, and very quickly Genesis turns into a sad story of the descent of the human race from blessedness to frustration. To evil, to estrangement from God, to estrangement from each other, and to death itself. I mean, death itself became part of what it is to live on earth. But even as far back as that initial human rebellion against the Creator, God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day... God would cause a descendant of the woman, Eve, to be born and rise up and crush the serpent, the great enemy of God. Restoring God's creation to its intended goodness. Now that promise, made all the way back in Genesis 3.15, would be, be repeated again and again in various forms throughout the centuries starting with the the most ancient forefathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's mentioned here in our text in verse 33. Years after Jacob, King David of Israel would receive the promise. and, and, And the promise to David was that one day, a descendant of his would sit on the throne and would reign forever. Now that Davidic promise ought to sound familiar because that's the promise Gabriel was talking about to Mary. There at verses 32 and 33, he's he's recalling that promise to David. Now, at the Annunciation right here, it's a thousand years since since that promise was made to David. It's 600 years since there had been there had been a descendant of David on any throne. And now what's what's, what's happening? The Spirit of God is once again hovering over, overshadowing another emptiness, another void, this time not the earth, but the womb of a virgin. And so begins in earnest the inauguration of God's cosmic reclamation project. Christmas is not some frozen, random event in the ancient Near East. It's the culmination of promises made by God over centuries. And is nothing less than God bringing a new Adam to earth. A new Adam to undo all that the first Adam had tragically accomplished. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Father, mysteriously implants the uncreated Son in the womb of a virgin to be born the second and final Adam, the one who would grow up to live the life Adam should have lived, to live the life you and I should have lived, and to die the death that you and I should die. Jesus perfectly obeyed God for us and undid our death sentence by dying Himself for us and thus taking its threat away from us forever. You see, the baby born at Christmas couldn't be just another man. It had to be a virginal conception, because this second Adam had to be God's man, the God-man. The last Adam who had the power, the ability, and the infinity to truly set all things right again, right? That's what Jesus said. This baby would grow up to say, behold, I am making all things new. And that's good news for us today, isn't it? In a divided, war-torn, virus-plagued world, the Gospel is not about saving you by having you beamed up out of here. That's the caricature of what the Christian message is. The Christian message is God coming down and making all things new. Restoring you And restoring our home. No more viruses. No more wars. No more death. Christmas has a context. It's a long one. And it's a grand one. It's a huge story. With a huge ending that hasn't happened yet. So that's reality number one. Christmas has a context. Reality number two. Christmas shows us that God does His best work on the margins. Mary was a village girl. Young. Uneducated. Almost certainly illiterate. Engaged to a village carpenter. We know zero about her family. We do know that she lived in a town that was ne- that is never mentioned in the Old Testament. A town that was the butt of jokes. The kind of hick town from which nothing good could ever come. Now you know what all this means, don't you? It means... Uh, As Dorothy Sayers so aptly put it, no one is too unimportant to be the Lord's friend. No one is too unimportant to be the Lord's friend. And I hope that's a huge encouragement uh, to you this morning, to every person who's hearing this right now. in a world of, where grades and resumes and accomplishments and being known and personal power and wealth are what counts, are what matters, are what makes you worth it, God says something else. God says, listen, if you're tired, broken, weak, Distracted. Insecure. Uncertain. Afraid. Unaccomplished. Poor. Anonymous. Last. Lost. Least. Or little. And who of us isn't one or more or all of those things? Then He, God, will know you and be your friend. Christmas is a good time to examine yourself. And there are three wrong ways you can respond when you do that. When you you turn your gaze inward and look into your own heart, look into your own life, who are you really, Who, who, who is the real you that... You don't show to anybody else. There are three ways, wrong ways, you can respond. One is that you can be self satisfied and self righteous, right? Confident that you're good with God, that you're completely acceptable to God, you've measured up to God. That's the deluded lie of the Pharisee. Or two, you can fall into cynicism or despair you can look at your life look at you and think that you're so small and so messed up that you've you've really you've crossed a line you've gone over the limits beyond where God cares that's the lie of the uh, of the devil friends and the third way you can respond is that you can do what so many people in in uh, in the West do, and in, in America for for sure, and that is to you, we we j- we jump quickly on the religion rat, into the religion rat race. Right, you hear a sermon, you get inspired, you vow to be better, you vow to work harder to make yourself worthy of God's acceptance, and God's love, and God's friendship. And Christian friends, let me tell you that each one of those responses actually drives a wedge between you and God. You know, there's a reason why Jesus, when He grew up, said that we had to become like little children (laughs) To inherit the kingdom of God, As, as one commentator put it, it's not because children are innocent, it's because they're incompetent. Christmas calls you to be honest with yourself. The Christian gospel says stop talking and acting like you've got it all together. Stop trying to earn what you can't earn. Admit your weaknesses, own up to your failures, and then lift your eyes off of yourself and fix them on the beauty and the love and the forgiveness and the grace and the sufficiency of Jesus. The Gospel is all Jesus and it's all grace. It's not about you. When Gabriel addressed Mary here in verse 28, there's been some disagreement over the years about the translation, right? Our Roman Catholic friends read it as, Hail Mary, full of grace. As if there were something in Mary, right? The fullness of her grace that qualified her for this calling. That's, that's a wrong reading. Our translation says, uh, O favored one. That's actually one word in Greek. It's a passive participle and it literally means something like one who has had grace bestowed on her. In verse 30, where Gabriel tells Mary that she has found favor with God, literally in the Greek that reads, you have found grace with God. The lesson here, friends, is not be like Mary so God will love you. The lesson is, you are like Mary, a nobody who God loves by grace. That's me. That's you. Friends, you and I are by grace on the receiving end of what Brennan Manning called the wild, relentless, passionate, uncompromising, pursuing love of God. More Christmas good news. So that's reality number two. Christmas shows us that God does His best work on the margins, always has. Mm -hmm. That brings us finally to reality number three. Christmas confronts you with a choice. And the choice is this. You you have a choice to make and it's between shrinking fear or surrendering trust. Are you going to shrink in fear or are you going to surrender to God in trust? That's the choice. That was Mary's choice. And it's your choice. When Gabriel came to Mary and... uh, She was, it says in verse 29, greatly troubled, and we also know she was afraid. And we know she was afraid because in verse 30, Gabriel tells her not to be afraid. The universal human reaction in the presence of angels was fear, and probably even more so in Mary's case, given what, what Gabriel was telling her. I mean, think about what the Annunciation meant to Mary. Okay? And then think about what you're facing today. God isn't asking you to, you know, undergo a virgin conception. That was a once-for-all event, right? Uh, but, But God is bringing you into circumstances where many of your challenges are today are similar to what Mary was 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 contemplating there as she was trying to f- figure out the ramifications of what Gabriel was telling her think think about what this annunciation did to Mary, and it, it, and, it, and, it, and really, I think the same same things happening to us today. When God turns your life upside down, when your life goals and plans and dreams have to be reconfigured, when God shatters your dearly held illusion that you are somehow in control. When both the present and the future are really uncertain. When you have to do things and endure things that are going to be hard and open you up to the disapproval of other people. All that was going through Mary's mind. All of that is going through your minds. And it's easy to shrink back in fear, isn't it? God was asking all of these things of Mary, and he's asking the same things of you. And just because, thankfully, as Gabriel reminds Mary, nothing is impossible with God, that doesn't mean everything is going to be easy with God. Mary could have shrunk back in fear. I I read a a poem about the Annunciation where the the poet said, you know, after Gabriel tells her this, the the poet says, the word waited on Mary's word. She was confronted with a choice. I mean, she, she could have very easily shrunk back in fear. But this is the greatness of Mary. She didn't do that, right? She chose... Instead of shrinking fear, surrendering trust. Verse 38, wonderful statement of surrendering trust. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. You see what she did there? She went all in with God because she knew that God owned the past owned the present, and owned the future by the power of His Word. Mary understood that God was in control and that God was working out His centuries-long program of pursuing nobodies like her with His wild and relentless love. Philip Yancey, Christian author Philip Yancey, reflecting on the Annunciation, said it this way, every work of God comes with two edges. Great joy and great pain. And in Mary's matter of fact response, she embraced both. Mary was the first human being to accept Jesus on His terms regardless of the personal cost. And in doing that, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, hovered over her, and filled her, as the poet Scott Cairns described her in his poem about the Annunciation, she burns, but she is not consumed. Comparing Mary to the burning bush, that confronted Moses that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. Christian friends, today you have the same choice. As we face a pandemic, an uncertain political future, we face the Prospect of continuing prospect of international terrorism. How are you going to respond? Right? Shrinking fear or surrendering trust? Be the burning bush, surrender in trust to the God. Who came for you at Christmas? If you do, you'll burn, but you will not be consumed. Will you know pain? Yes. Hardship? Yes. Difficulty? Yes. Great joy? Yes. Eternal life? Yes. That's the good news of Christmas. This is the real inauguration. Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for that wild and relentless pursuing love that brought Jesus to us, the second Adam. God, we're a people that are, you know, fearful, uncertain. Many ways, so many ways we're like Mary. Help us not to shrink back in fear, but to look to the future in surrendering trust to you. Thank you for the sufficiency of what Jesus accomplished. Thank you that there's nothing we can do that would cause you to love us or accept us more than you already do because of what Jesus has done. Help us to remember, Father, that it isn't about us, that it's about Jesus and it's about Your grace. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Asking You, Lord, in this Advent season to help us to reflect on who You are and what You've done. And in doing so, Father, change us, transform us. In Jesus' name, Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.